Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. It is Friday, June 18th. On this episode, we will discuss the San Diego Padres, inspired by our colleague Dennis Lynn writing a story about the Padres' offense underperforming expectations to this point. We'll take a deep dive on their roster and talk about some players who could be on the move as the trade deadline approaches about six weeks from now. We'll take a look at some of the separation in the AL East, where the Rays and Red Sox have opened up a little bit of a gap over the Yankees and Jays. And then we'll take a look at Keith's story from earlier this week at The Athletic about some D1 programs cutting baseball and the impact that will have on the game. Keith, how's it going for you on this Friday? Uh, good, good. How about yourself? Hanging in there. Having a little break from the sweltering heat we were getting in the Midwest for a few mm. weeks. We had a bunch of like 90-degree days here, and I'm glad those have uh, at least temporarily gone away. But uh, let's begin with a place that has great weather. Let's talk about San Diego. Mm -hmm. The offense has not been as good as we expected, and you could say, well, Tatis missed some time, and he did but he didn't miss enough time to tank the overall value of that offense. And he's played exceptionally well when he's been out there. He's been a star to this point. Uh, Trent Grisham has been excellent building on what he did in the shortened season. But you start looking at the other guys in this lineup and you see a lot of players who have underperformed expectations, even from the higher end, like Manny Machado, down to some of the secondary pieces in the lineup, like Jerickson Profar. And it's pretty clear that as we approach the trade deadline, the Padres have some work to do, even though A.J. Preller and that front office have been extremely busy improving this roster over the better part of the last two years. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're above the NL median and run scored per game. They're above the median and on-base percentage, and that's unadjusted, right? They play in a pitcher's park. So I feel like overall they're scoring enough runs per game. Uh, they're a little light on power. Now, of course, some of that is the ballpark, but also, you know, Tatis Jr. has 21 home runs. No one else on the team has more than nine. That's Manny Machado. There's really not another legitimate power threat. Maybe Trent Grisham is that. Now that he's back, he actually has eight home runs in only 41 games so far. So I guess maybe you could argue there's two power threats in the lineup right now. But that's it. Jake Cronenworth is kind of, I think most folks expected. He's really come back down to earth this year. Will Myers is what he is. Eric Hosmer is what he is. I mean, there's just a lot of guys in that lineup who just aren't that good. Uh, you know, and there are a very, there, you talk, there are a lot of reasons why some of this might be the case. And they're certainly waiting, still waiting on some players to come up to, uh, to the majors to contribute. And we'll see CJ Abrams, Abrams at some point. I don't know if we'll see him this year. Would he be better than Haseong Kim? Yeah, almost certainly. Kim has a 265 on base percentage. He's kind of not really doing anything. Both he and Jerkson Profar just shouldn't be everyday players. Maybe not on any team, but certainly not on a contender. And I I guess if you're looking for a silver lining, if you're a Padres fan, that's two places you could probably fairly quickly make some sort of upgrade to the 
lineup to replace either of those guys. And they're not, you know, finding a second baseman potentially or a multi-position utility infielder, certainly a lot easier than say, trying to find a true shortstop and trying to find a corner outfielder. I mean, gosh, if they can't find someone in their own system to do that, they certainly should be able to find someone to replace Profar and provide some more offense in an outfield corner. Yeah. I think with Profar, I mean, part of the reason he was playing a lot for a stretch at the end of May was Grisham's injury. They needed Profar to play center field because they didn't really have anybody else they liked out there. Right. At least with Grisham healthy, they can ease up on Profar a bit. If you look at the game log from the last week or so, it's less Profar. Ideally, it's Fam, Myers, Grisham. Grisham in center, the other two guys in the corners. And then you could argue, well, do you upgrade over Myers? Do you upgrade over Fam? You could probably just even one corner outfielder upgrades over either of those guys. And then Profar, Profar is probably... a uh, he looks like a DFA at this point. I believe he's got time left on the contract, but he is. It's just not coming back. And I say that as somebody who was very high on Profar when he was still a prospect before the two years of shoulder injuries. And he's shown flashes, but at some point you just have to acknowledge that player is never coming back. Yeah, and even last year in the shortened season, he was an above average player offensively. A 111 WRC plus does a good job putting a lot of balls in play. He's become a lot more patient over time. He's got yeah. a career high walk rate right now. There's some <laughs> things that are going right, but he is not hitting the ball hard at all. And I think it, it's an easy skill set to replace. It's the kind of player that does not fly uh, as a regular uh, on a team with championship aspirations, mm-hmm. which is absolutely what the Padres have, and, and rightfully so at this point. Um, how much are you a believer in what we've seen from Trent Grisham going back to last season because when the Brewers and Padres made that trade one of my thoughts was well the Brewers are crowded in the outfield makes sense for that reason and Grisham is probably a big side platoon guy and more of a regular than an above average sort of regular and clearly he has exceeded expectations since that trade is this a level you think he can sustain going forward and I guess the level I'm referring to is more of a combination of what we've seen across parts of three seasons in the big leagues now, right? He was pretty decent when he debuted for the Brewers by need in 2019. And for his career, he's a 256 guy with a 350 OBP and a 461 slug. That's a good player if that's who he truly is. Yeah, he's really, he's actually a very good player because it's on-base skills, it's power, it's speed, and ability to play center field. And I I had ranked Grisham on my top 100 a couple of times. I always thought he would hit I did not think he'd be a big power guy, and he was not a big runner going back to high school. I think he's faster now than he was in high school or first couple of years in the minors with the Brewers, where he had a couple of years where it looked like all this guy could do was walk. Uh, and sometimes those guys who do nothing else but walk, that's a sign that they just can't do anything else, that they're not going to hit. I, and I, to tell you the truth, the scouting reports I got from folks who saw Grisham were not a whole lot better. It was like, all this guy does is just take pitches. He looks like he's afraid to hit, which obviously not that's not the case now. It probably wasn't really the case then, but he did not produce other than the high walk rates in the low minors. And it was a long time before he started. So I think he got to double A before he finally started to do anything else at the plate. Even then the hope was, well, he'll be a high average, high on base guy, but it's probably not going to be a ton of power and he's going to be a corner outfielder. I think he's legitimately faster now. I think he really can play center field and this power looks mostly real. Do I think he's a, you know, maybe a, 30 homer a year guy. I don't know. He's got 24 homers in his career at 151 games, 131 as as starts. So he's kind of on that pace. I might bet slightly under that, but certainly if he's a, as you said, 350 career OBP guy without, I think a whole lot of a platoon split and can hit 20 plus homers and can steal some bags and play real center, play legitimate defense in center field. Got the guy I just describes a borderline star. Yeah, I mean, it's a fantastic trade for San Diego. And I think the thing when I go back and and look at Grisham as a young player, what really struck me is pretty odd when he was in the Midwest League way back in 2016. If you look at where he was hitting the ball, he was predominantly an opposite field hitter from the left side and a guy that was walking a lot, probably because he was being very patient, maybe too patient at times. And once he started pulling the ball as he moved up in the system, that's when he unlocked that power. And it's just really interesting to me that you could have this approach where you go the other way almost too much, because <laughs> that's a good thing in today's game with so much shifting and defensive positioning being as good as it is, you know, not being a guy that you can shift against. That's a huge advantage to have if you have that. I almost wonder if it's easier 
to start to develop the pull side power if you have the ability to go the other way initially upon turning pro. It is, you know, this has come up with a couple of players. I feel like this came up with um, you know, Trevor Larnack, who I'm still watching the batted ball data now that he's in the big leagues, but one of the big knocks on him at Oregon, Oregon State from literally every single scout I spoke to who saw him was that nobody really ever saw him pull the ball that he was, everything was away, away, away. It was clearly an approach. But scouts want to see you, if the, when you're trying to evaluate a player's hit tool, you really want to see that the player can go the other way, that he's not pull side only, which I've certainly seen plenty of those guys. Um, but that also, when he gets something middle in, particularly a pitch that is something you think he should be able to hit, that he's able to pull it. And so, you know, in, in the case of a hitter who's doing too much of one or too much of the other, I think it just becomes an unanswered question where the hitter really is going to have to demonstrate an ability. You might look and say, well, I think he will do that. Obviously, the twins taking Larnack where they did thought he would show the ability to pull the ball. When the Brewers took Grisham in the first round umpteen years ago, uh, he nearly went fourth that year to the Texas Rangers until Dylan Tate finally agreed to terms, agreed to take the Rangers money right before the draft, or he would have been with Texas. Same thing then. It was a belief that he would show more as he got older, as he as he matured and moved up the ladder. But you never really know for sure. It's always a, a bit of an educated guess until that guy shows you that he can do both. And pitchers will force him to show, force any player like that to show. If he's just going the other way, going the other okay, fine. We're going to pound you inside, and you can't go the other way with that. And you're going to have to show us that you can pull the ball effectively. Was that a critique that you heard about Bo Bichette back when he was a prospect too? People hated Bichette's crazy swing. And I was on it because it was like, eh, this guy's hit everywhere. He just hits. All he does is hit. He has exceptional hand eye. I think he's calmed it down like 20% since then. But it was nuts. You just, you would never teach anyone to hit that way. But he had such a knack for barreling up different types of pitching, different, different pitch types, different kinds of pitchers. And I was like, yeah, it's, noisy and ugly and you probably wouldn't do it that way but i don't care it works it really seems to work yeah uh, a bit like hunter pence's swing right don't mess with it it's working for him yep. leave it alone with Bo bichette the story was always that he was a really competitive tennis player and a tennis swing and a baseball swing your hands aren't doing the same thing they're not the same so no. if you if you can't switch back and forth if you have Something that works for both, well, you might have something kind of special. I think that's what Bo Bichette has proven to us uh, to this point. Uh, but going back to the Padres here just for a moment, you, know, you look beyond the lineup. Blake Snell hasn't been the Blake Snell they thought they were getting so far. Plenty of strikeouts, 85 strikeouts and 61 in the third innings, but a 572 ERA and a 157 whip. What is going on with him? A lot of shorter starts, too, and it's kind of, I guess, ironic given uh, the last time we saw him pitch for the Rays <laughs> that we were all you know, shaking our fist at the idea that he could have been taken out of the game as early as he was, given how well he was pitching uh, in that spot. But have you spotted anything with Snell that gives you cause for concern, or do you think this just amounts to you know a two-and-a-half-month stretch where he's just had an unfortunate number of blow-ups that have really spun those numbers in the wrong direction. Well, he's he's really not throwing a lot of strikes. I mean, that's the biggest. I don't mean to be overly simplistic, but at, at some point, you you got to throw a lot more strikes than this. And it's just, to me, that seems to be the number one reason. And I, you know, the walk rate's high, but it's not just that, right? It's not just that maybe he's not throwing strikes. He's getting to three ball counts, not throwing strikes. He's just not throwing strikes, not throwing anywhere near enough strikes, not throwing strikes like he has basically at any point, I would say, since his... Uh, I almost said his freshman year shows you where my head is <laughs> since his rookie year five years ago with the Rays. I mean, his walk rate, strike rate, strike percentages have been better ever since then. And I don't, I don't know why. I have no idea what the cause is of this reversion. Is he hurt? Is there something off mechanically? I mean, those are really the two most common explanations for a pitcher just kind of losing the strike zone a bit like he has. It also makes you wonder, well, if it is mechanical, could he just snap back? Could somebody, could he figure this out? Could somebody spot something? I haven't, of course, you know, wouldn't, don't have access to the kind of video that teams do to be able to spot some tiny mechanical shift. I certainly haven't seen it. Uh, but that would be my first, the first thing I'd look for. And the second, unfortunately, is to ask whether he's 
hurt or not. And obviously, I don't want that to be the case. But when a guy suddenly loses, when he either loses a good bit of velocity or he loses a good bit of command and or control, one of the first things I question is, well, is he healthy? It doesn't have to be an arm problem, but it could be something physical is changing the way he's pitching. And then we're just seeing it in the results. Yeah, and I think the good news with Snell, at least, is that we haven't seen a velocity drop thus far. He's in range of his career norms, so these all look fine. Yeah, I'm just I just pulled it up just to make sure I wasn't missing something talking out of turn. And yeah, every the velocity at least is all where it should be. It's kind of like he's the new Robbie Ray, and Robbie Ray is not exactly the old Blake Snell. He's something else entirely. So it's not a Freaky Friday situation, but it's just <laughs> it's weird to see. Blake Snell missing this many bats and not getting good results. And mm-hmm. I know there's been a lot of uh, variance in his, his strand rates, his left on base percentage. When he won the Cy Young in 2018, he was elite there. Even in the shortened season, he was elite there. And a lot of that can be good fortune. Some of that's just having a great defense behind you, too, which was always the case, I think, for him in Tampa Bay as well. So definitely among the puzzles. But for all these things that haven't gone perfectly for the Padres, plenty of things have gone right. Of course, you Darvish and Joe Musgrove pitched really well. Even Chris Paddock, I think, is sort of trending back in the right direction after a disappointing 2020. And they've got the fourth highest playoff odds entering play on Thursday, 81.5%. So if you're a Padres fan, you know, you're still feeling really good. But the question for you, though, if you're thinking about making a deal with the Padres, and you have to assume, of course, C.J. Abrams is going absolutely nowhere in any of those deals. Mm-hmm. Who are you trying to target in this system right now? Who do you see as some of the, the better prospects that you might actually be able to acquire come the trade deadline? Yeah, I would imagine that Abrams is certainly going to be unattainable because they view him as their next Tatis, their next superstar. I also think Luis Campusano, who we saw very, very briefly this year, I think he'd probably be untouchable because they've traded so much other catching depth from the system. It's no, this guy's our catcher of the future. Uh, I think you could ask for Mackenzie Gore. Obviously, he's not, he hasn't blown away AAA like folks expected. But I also have a feeling, first of all, I know that the Padres people have not like have lost any uh, faith in Gore, at least not publicly, and. Uh, and they're also, I think, counting on him at some point to come up and take some innings for them. Doesn't, you know, it's not clear exactly what role that would be. Um, but, you know, once he's, you know, at some point when he seems to be fully healthy and he's throwing right again, I know he just pitched through two innings the other day. So it seems like after a little layoff, he threw, two, actually, I should say he threw two innings and he didn't walk anybody. So maybe that's progress. We'll see. I just have a feeling they look at Gore and say, this guy is too high of a ceiling. We're not going to trade him. So I just rattled off three guys who are untouchable. That's If you have more than three untouchable guys, you're probably not doing a very good job of self-evaluation. I remember a story where when I was still with the Blue Jays, we were trying to do a deal with, an, deal with another team. Um, and they said they had nine untouchable prospects in their system. I was like, what? We, we, what? Did you just do anything? Did, so, But beyond that, honestly, I would ask for kind of just about anybody and probably try to mix it up because I think they have some pretty good pitching depth in terms of some power arms. You know, Anderson Espinosa's back. I'm sure everyone would be terrified of him uh, because he's had the double Tommy John surgery, but hell, I, you know, if I, as long as we have recent scouting looks on him and the medicals check out, he could be pretty interesting. Maybe he's just a reliever at this point because of the injury history, but would love to try it. The stuff was pretty special before he got hurt in the first place. Joshua Mears, you know, would you could you outfielder Joshua Mears got great bat speed, huge power. Could you get a Robert Hassel, their first rounder from last year? Probably not for a rental, but maybe if you were trading a player, kind of like a snail type deal. Um, they may say no. They may also say he's untouchable because he was a first rounder, and I know they believe very strongly in his bat and his potential to play strong defense. But there's there's still some depth in this system, even if you cut off say the top. What did I say? The top three guys, possibly four. And, you know, maybe you also target somebody who's, you know, Tukapita Marcano has been in the big leagues quite a bit. Uh, he's not a very high ceiling guy, but I think he's a pretty good prospect and could be a regular for a while. Maybe he's somebody you target instead, especially if, say, you're trading someone who would be taking second base at bats. Say, okay, fine, we'll give you a second baseman who'll cover you for this year and next, but we got to get Marcano back in return. That's, you know, there are a lot of possibilities here, despite the fact that the system has been depleted by promotions and by multiple trades that took a lot of guys out of their top 20 in their system. There's still some stuff I think you could potentially do. You just might have to be a little more creative than you did a year or so ago. 
Yeah, and Marcano seems to be one of the closer to the big league options you could acquire, though, of, mm-hmm. of their prospects. A lot of the guys you see on their prospect list now are very early in their professional careers, and you're taking a little more of a leap, of course, and waiting a lot longer for those players. But I think Marcano is right at that line of players that you could actually trade for because we've seen this. It's something you've talked about on, on the Keith Law Show, and I think Joe Sheehan tweeted something similar to it this week where we see minimal top 50 prospects on the move at this point. Yeah. I think there's like one yep. or two in the last four to five years. I forget the exact numbers, but it's it's, ex- it's increasingly rare for teams to be willing to part with a player who is widely regarded as a top prospect. Yeah, teams don't want to trade those guys. Teams are very afraid. I think it's two reasons. One, teams are, are very afraid of trading Fernando Tatis, right? I mean, that's what happened was he was traded for James Shields. The White Sox had Tatis, traded him before he ever played a game for their organization. And they're obviously that's going to keep coming up kind of forever. So teams are worried about doing that, especially now if you have fewer scouts, how many looks do you have at the players in your own system? Do you really have as good at uh, the necessary evaluations of your own prospects? But I think the even big, the bigger driver is that teams don't want to give up those first three years of cost-controlled production, where we have so many players who come up and within a year or so of debuting, they're incredibly productive major leaguers making the minimum salary. And no one wants to give those guys up. It is financial flexibility. Financial flexibility does not actually win championships, but I think a lot of teams operate as if it does, as if there's a separate flag given out for the team with the most financial flexibility over the course of the year. And hey, look, financial flexibility is nice to have. I wouldn't let it stand in the way of me trying to win a championship. Yeah, I think the official award was a belt. That's what they were passing around. Yeah, yeah, I think they've stopped that. Once the union found that, that's just ixnay on the Elk Bay. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on to the AL East where things have stratified a little bit. You got the Rays and Red Sox getting some separation over the Yankees and Jays. All four of those teams absolutely still in the mix for a playoff spot, though, with still plenty of time to play. This kind of hit me as I was digging into Boston's offensive production, Keith. Is Xander Bogarts the most overlooked or underrated big market player in the game? He's tied for ninth in F-War since 2017. It's better than Freddie Freeman, better than Cody Bellinger, better than Chris Bryant. I mean, these are guys that have won MVP awards, and Bogarts is only a two-time All-Star, and he's just one of those guys. He just goes out there, he produces, he's a good defender at a premium position too, and I think he somehow kind of flies under the radar in a huge market. I wonder... Yeah, I do think he kind of flies under the radar. I've always been a huge Bogarts fan. I think he was number two on my prospect list one year. Um, the one thing I'll say with Bogarts is if you go back to stuff I'd written about him going back to when he was about 17 or so, is I kind of thought there'd be a lot more power there. Now, he did. He had 33 homers in 2019. That was his age 26 season. I think he's a little – I'm just eyeballing. He might be a little shy of that pace right now, but I actually thought there'd be maybe a little less batting average and fewer doubles and more home runs. And it turns out he's high average, high, high doubles with plenty of home runs. Um, it's just a slightly different shape, but it's still a really good player in who doesn't lack anything. I don't think there's any significant hole in his game, but there's also not one huge carrying tool, right? He's not going to, you know, he's not Vlad Jr. Tatis Jr. where he's hitting these phenomenal home runs. He is not, you know, if you, you're one of the league leaders in OBP, folks like you and I will notice and we'll talk him up, but that doesn't really get you on Sports Center or MLB Tonight, right? There's 
it, there's no single thing. He's not going to be at the top of a leaderboard. He's going to appear somewhere in the top 10 in a lot of different categories. And I wonder if that's why that you're more likely to see a Rafael Devers highlight than you were as Andrew Bogart's highlight. I'm not complaining. I don't think that really <laughs> matters at all, but it's that Devers is going to hit. He's going to probably continue to lead. He's leading the team in home runs. He's probably going to continue to do so. And they're really impressive home runs. Whereas Bogarts is going to hit probably almost as many home runs and just be a generally more valuable player, but be less highlight worthy. And if the, if this is the case, your premise is that he's a bit overlooked. If that's actually the case, this could be the reason why. Where it's not that he's not a great player, but it's that he doesn't have one single thing that he does that is so exceptional that you can't avoid hearing about him doing something. Right. And I think just to hammer this home, people are aware of Xander Bogarts. I think they just underestimate how truly productive and good he has been in the last five years. Right. Compared to how good he is, it's almost as if we could measure attention given to a player relative to actual on-field production. Does he lag some other stars? I think so. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably true. I don't know that I pay enough attention to that to have a really strong opinion, but it it seems like, for example, it seems like even on social media, I see more off-field Devers highlights. I also understand why that is, and I'm good with that. Right, and you see more J.D. Martinez highlights, too. At least it's, it seems like you yes. see more J.D. Martinez highlights. But that big three in the heart of that lineup, certainly a big part of why their offense has been so good. Secondary guys like Alex Verdugo and even Hunter Renfro has, mm-hmm. after a slow start, been pretty productive for them. You know, Christian Vasquez popped up a bit more offensively last year. I think he's tailed off a little bit this year. But top to bottom, this is still a very good lineup, a well-above-average lineup, I think in the American League. I think all the questions we had about this team coming into the season were focused on pitching. I mean, Nathan Evaldi has been really good so far, almost two and a half wins in terms of war already in the middle of June. Uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, I think, is getting all this attention for some pretty ghastly ratios. But when I look at him, it's kind of like what we just did with Blake Snell. It's like, well, is anything truly wrong? And I think with Snell, the control is the obvious thing that's wrong. With Rodriguez, it's not necessarily as easy to figure it out because he's got the best walk rate of his career. His K rate's actually at a career high right now. Home runs haven't gone through the roof. Like The quick glance says Erod's actually going to be fine. Yeah, I think that's the case. I mean, he looked really good right out of the shoot, right? I think there was some talk early in the year. Oh, he's completely back. He's recovered from, right? He had COVID. He had myocarditis. Uh, as a result, he missed all of the 2020 season, and it wasn't clear, I think, until about February or so that he would be back at 100% for this year. But it seems like the stuff is just as good as ever. He's just had some incredibly rotten luck on balls in play. Now, I cannot tell. I'm going to just be honest. Okay, I actually checked. His velocity is down about half a mile an hour from where it was two years ago on his fastball. Maybe that's it. I also don't know to what extent is this is his command off a little bit. I've not watched enough Rodriguez starts to actually tell you if that's the case. But sometimes we look at high BABIPs and his BABIP is way out of line with the rest of his career. And his uh, strand rate is pretty awful and also way out of line with the rest of his career. I don't think anybody could, is going to have a, what, a 62.4% left on base rate. That's just that, you know, that is the black cloud is just following you around every time you take the mound. Could some of that be Command issues, that he's just a little rusty and has lost some location? Sure. I have not watched enough Rodriguez starts to actually tell you if that's the case. But I also look at this against his career norms, and it also would admit I've kind of been a huge Rodriguez honk since they first traded for the guy. Uh, God, what is that, seven years ago now? So I concede I may be slightly biased in his favor, but I would buy stock in Eduardo Rodriguez for the rest of the season. With the stuff there, the walk rate where it is, the strikeout rate good, and those two indicators seemingly impossible for him to sustain. I mean, God, the difference between his ERA and his FIP is two and a half runs in the good direction. So I have a feeling he's going to be better from here on out. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it turns around for him too. I just don't see any compelling reason to believe it won't. But I think where things start to break down still for the Red Sox, this is true of most teams, even most good teams, the back half of the rotation, and they're going to get Chris Sale back at some point. He's progressing in his bullpen sessions. Timetable still maybe a little bit fuzzy, but they're going to use the old cliche like, well, he's one of our trade deadline acquisitions because that's just going to happen. That's just how it works. But Nick Pavetta and Garrett Richards and Martin Perez, I mean, Perez for a while especially was really pitching at a level that I didn't see as being sustainable. Those numbers have corrected real fast. If you go back two starts ago, 
He had a 309 ERA and a 123 whip. Uh, three and a third innings later, over two starts, he's at 452 and 143. So uh, regression hit you fast. Yeah, regression hit him real fast in that case. But when it was happening, I was talking about this in one of the fantasy shows. I'm like, I don't see anything different about him. I can't. I can't sit here and say yes. Martin Perez will be fine. This looked like the same guy, just getting really nice results for his first 10 starts or so. Uh, Richards is probably the most interesting of the three to me because he's shown us before that he can pitch at a near ace sort of level, and he's been through a lot, of course, with Tommy John. The numbers are all over the place with him. Walks have been an issue. Home runs haven't, which is, uh, to me, an encouraging sign. At least if you're walking a lot of guys, you're not giving up home runs. You don't have the double whammy. Where do you think they're getting quality innings behind those first two starters, at least, going forward? How much do you trust guys like Richards and Pavetta to at least be passable mid or back-end guys for this team throughout the second half? And I don't know that I have a whole lot of trust in either of those guys. It's part of why I didn't think the Red Sox were going to be where they are in the stand. As you go back to my preseason predictions, I just thought their rotation was going to be a huge, uh, huge Achilles heel for them and probably keep them from being a playoff club. I find it easier to buy into Evaldi, and I think you and I are on the same page on Rodriguez. And obviously, we expect Chris Sale to be productive, however much he's able to pitch when he comes back. But in Richard's case, it's really just can he hold up and frankly, can he, can he throw more strikes the rest of the way? Can he be, you know, this is not peak Garrett Richards, but also we haven't seen a lot of Garrett Richards too. And so there's always hope that if he stays healthy and continues pitching, we'll get back to where he was sort of peak Garrett Richards from before he started to get hurt. Whereas with Pivetta, I mean, this is kind of who he is. He's going to be really volatile. I, I think he's volatile on the mound. I don't, I so trust a lot of him when he was here in Philadelphia, the handful of times I would go to major league games because I wasn't going to minor league games. I've seen Pivetta all the way back to where he was in high A. I see a guy who's kind of like a two and a half pitch guy and he's got some sort of quirky vulnerabilities. It's not all lefties. You look at his platoon splits, but there are certain left-handed hitters that he just does not have a good weapon for. They seem to see the ball better out of his hand. Also, I just think he's like a 45 command guy and that's all he's ever going to be. And whether that is a delivery issue or that is something about his mental approach to pitching, I don't really know. But I feel like this is kind of who he's always been. He's got a four and a quarter ERA. I would maybe slightly take the over. Not a lot. I'm not saying I think he's going to be a five ERA guy the rest of the way, but I would expect a little bit less out of him. And in Richard's case, I might expect a little less just because I don't know how much he's really going to pitch. He's made 14 starts for them. Do I think he made 16 starts the rest of the way? Hey, I sure hope so. But I think any look at his career, the smart money is no, probably not. Thinking about what Chaim Bloom might be doing to fortify the rotation, since you have a guy like Sale coming back, you have a high-end an ace type coming back already. Do you just look for the the second level starters available at the deadline? Because if you're in Boston's position, you do have a few really nice prospects: Jeter Downs, Jaron Duran, Tristan Casas. Those those guys are interesting to other teams for sure. But you probably also see those guys as filling some pretty clear needs on your own roster in the relatively near future. So that might kind of steer you into the the TJ Max side of the uh, oh, pitching market. Max, what level is he pitching at this year? Is he in Salem? <laughs> He's a lefty at Double A. Ah, gotcha. <laughs> so where where do you go if you're high on bloom? Like, who do you realistically think you're going to target to make this rotation better? Yeah, I think the problem that they have, too, is that they're just – if you'd asked them before the year, they thought that maybe Thad Ward would be able to come up and be a fifth starter for them. Uh, and, you know, he made two starts before he went to the injured list, and uh, he went uh, ended up having Tommy John surgery about, I don't know, I think a month after that, earlier this month. So a guy who could have been, you know, just a fifth starter who can provide some innings is gone. Andrew Politi, who looked like you know, pretty interesting, kind of sleeper prospect, could have maybe been a fifth starter for them at some point this year. He hasn't pitched well. They just don't have a fifth starter who's close to ready. I think they have guys in their system who are pitching prospects, but none of them is likely to come up and do that for them this year. And then on top of that, there was just a discussion on our internal Slack uh, MLB channel earlier this week where I forgot who posed the question was asking saying, you know, do any of you cover a team essentially where there's, you got an innings guy. He doesn't have to be good, but just somebody who can soak up some innings. And there were not a lot of good answers. Actually. I don't know that we're going to see a lot of those guys available. And unfortunately for the Red Sox, that's what they need. The thing they, they need the shelves at TJ Maxx are, are kind of bare right now. <laughs> I don't know how much we're going to, I, you know, going back to that Joe Sheehan newsletter too, from the other day, I read that and I thought, 
and we just may not see a lot of trade activity this year. Maybe we just don't. And it's not because we're not, it's not because teams don't want to make deals in either direction, but it's that there aren't a lot of particularly good rental candidates out there and teams seem particularly disinclined to pay for rental candidates when they are out there. And does that just make a lot of teams say, eh, we'd rather just keep this guy for the last two months rather than get some grade Z, you know, uh, some prospects out of Z ball who are like, maybe if everything works out, they're grade 45 players. I don't know. You know, I've always said the attitude, taking the attitude that's better to just trade those guys than to take, maybe get a draft pick for them at the end of the year and a draft pick that you don't even know how high it's going to be. And the draft pick rules can always change on you, especially with, you know, heading towards the CBA negotiation. So I don't know yet in this case, I might actually say, wow, if you're really get if, if, you know, springboarding off of what Joe wrote, if, if you're just really getting a lot of nothing offers and the players you need, like back to the Red Sox situation, that innings guy you need, maybe just isn't available right now. Do you just say, no, we'll just try to, cobble something together with with the guys we have and maybe do you know the occasional bullpen day to try to stretch out our rotation and keep you know keep a Garrett Richards healthy as long as you can I don't know I don't have a good answer to this I don't as of right now maybe somebody else has to fall out of the playoff race for us to see some more players potentially enter that trade portal but I as of right now it's not looking great yeah, I think that the thing the Red Sox could do is maybe fortify their bullpen depth a little bit. Their A mm-hmm. bullpen, you know, Matt Barnes, Adam Adovino, Garrett Whitlock, maybe Josh Taylor on some days. That's a good A bullpen. Mm-hmm. Many teams need to improve their B bullpen. What do you do when those guys are unavailable? How do you make sure you have enough quality arms if you do need to run on some bullpen games to get through the end of the season? Most teams are not in a position like the Rays where you lose Tyler Glass now uh, with the flexor strand and, and partial UCL tear. And you have a Luis Patino pretty much ready to come up. And I'm just kind of curious, what is your overall assessment of Patino? He's not up yet, but I imagine he'll be up relatively soon because he's probably their best option by a decent margin to come up and at least go four or five innings every fifth day in Glasnow's place. Yeah, and I'm of the opinion that not a doctor, obviously, I only play one on a podcast, but I'm going to guess that we probably don't see Glasnow again this year at all. And I'm going to guess that he probably ends up undergoing Chami John surgery. And I certainly don't think it has anything to do with the sticky stuff. Sorry. I thought we were going to go a whole show without mentioning that. I wasn't going to bring it up. Uh, sorry. I failed. Uh, I like Patino a lot. I think he's got a really high ceiling. Uh, I, I have little concerns about the delivery. They're not huge ones. I have little concerns about some of the command. They're not huge ones. I think this is, I, I do think he's got a pretty exceptionally high ceiling. Um, and I feel very good about him getting there at some point. I think we also saw last year when he came up for the Padres, probably a little bit ahead of schedule also, but we saw, hey, you know what? These guys actually, sometimes they're not quite as ready as you thought. Um, you know, particularly for pitchers, I think a lot of it is just about command and about learning, hey, those big league, those AAA hitters, they wouldn't chase at that slider that you just sort of backdoor off the outside at the outside corner well major league hitters have a better idea of what's going on um, the better ability to pick that pitch up uh, you know some of those adjustments just take time and it seemed like patinia last year with premium stuff he wasn't awful but he wasn't what we expected right out of the shoot he's looked okay for the Rays in some very limited use so far this year if they call him up, this would be, you know, call him up to be an actual starter the first time he's really getting stretched out like that at the major or minor league level this year. And I don't know, maybe they call him up and they do sort of the, they do a tandem strategy with him, right? He's only thrown 25 innings so far between the two levels this year, in part because he's been shuttled back and forth a bit. Maybe he comes up and he's a three inning starter for a little while and they build him up over the course of the rest of the season. That might actually be the best strategy for him rather than just run him out there and say, nope, you're a, you're a twice through the order guy right away, even though we really haven't stretched you out for that at all this year. I do like it as a evaluation tool just to see how someone fares first time through the lineup, push them a little more next time out. If things keep going well, keep scaling up the workload. Don't just throw the guy out there and say, all right, 90 pitches, you're going through the lineup three times, let's go and have the guy go three and change because he didn't have command or was just struggling to even get guys out right like your expectations as a team your planning is better like you you are not going to be caught off guard and reacting for days to that sort of start if you lower the expectations that you're putting on the player from the jump 
I also wonder if we're going to see Shane Baz at some point. He, uh, Shane Baz, who actually turns 22 today as we record this, uh, he just destroyed double A. Two walks, 49 strikeouts, and 32 innings, just nine runs allowed through seven starts. They bumped him up to triple A. He just, four, just a four inning start in triple A, but results were good. The stuff has always been there. I mean, this is absolutely, you know, you can easily see top of the rotation upside there. What is really exceptional, I mean, it's the best possible outcome is, well, this kind of strike throwing is just an entirely new level for him. Um, his last three starts, now, of course, they've, it's the Rays, so he's only going five innings every start. Uh, looks like he's through 90 pitches once so far this season. That's just how they do it. Um, he went 15 innings in his last three starts and didn't walk anybody. And he walked one guy in his AAA debut. Maybe he comes up. Now, maybe he's not coming up right now. Obviously, it's one start in AAA. It would probably take another opening or another injury. Maybe he comes up and he and Patino become some sort of tandem starting arrangement. Or maybe he just maybe he's waiting in AAA for the next opening in the rotation. But it would not surprise me at all to see Baz come up. And maybe Baz is better this year than Patino is. Maybe he's a little further along. Maybe he's made more progress. I'm scouting the stat line a little bit. I haven't seen Baz this year. I've seen him plenty in the past. I know what he's capable of. But with his kind of stuff, throwing strikes at that rate makes him a bit – frankly, the ceiling is just – he's actually, I shouldn't say the ceiling is higher. He is has a better chance of reaching his ceiling now with this kind of command and control, particularly control. Yeah, it seems like the control he has shown this year has at least put him in the conversation for best pitching prospect in the minors, which previously mm-hmm. he would have been probably second tier in a conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. Like yeah. that. Yep, I think that's fair. Guys who throw that – you don't see a lot of guys who throw that hard. It's not that he had effort in terms of like getting hurt, but there was work involved. There's usually work involved to throw that hard. To throw that hard – I mean, Hunter Green's kind of doing this a bit too. To throw that hard and be dotting the strike zone like that, never walking anybody is – I mean, that's, that's exceptional. There's usually at most maybe two guys in the minors who are doing that. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra-flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. So I wanted to ask you about the piece you wrote earlier this week for The Athletic. And without giving the entire piece away, of course, I, I think there were several programs, D1 schools that cut their baseball programs in the past year. And the common refrain that you see from schools that do this, the ADs that speak on these matters, and from the ADs at the big schools that don't have it, is... Money. Oh, it costs money. It costs money to have the facilities. It costs money to compete. It's always a money thing, right? That's the the number one focus. How fair is it even to say that to people at some of these schools and some of these instances? Like, is is it a is it a legitimate concern at the smaller D one programs that were cut? Like, is that actually a real valid reason versus a place 
uh, like Syracuse, where they don't have a baseball program, or at Wisconsin, where they haven't had a baseball program since 1991. I heard a lot. So I spoke to for folks who haven't read the article. I spoke to athletic directors. I spoke to coaches. I spoke to a couple of players uh, who from schools who as recent cut baseball as recently as a few weeks ago. In the case of North Carolina Central, to schools that haven't had baseball in forty years. Um, you know, Syracuse and Colorado and um, Boise State actually fits both categories. They dropped it in nineteen eighty, brought it back in twenty twenty, and canceled it thirteen games into the season because there was a pandemic. Um, and because of money, it, it's just always money. The answer is always money. And whatever else people bring up, it always comes down to money. If the baseball programs, if baseball programs in general generated revenue to cover their costs, because baseball is, it's an expensive sport. I kind of get it on a base, business level that if they generated the revenue to help cover their costs, then people would complain about them less. They'd cut, they would probably cut other sports. But it is a bit of a zero-sum game. You know, those of us who are involved in the baseball industry, we kind of have to approach it and think baseball first. Do I want to see swimming and diving get cut, which also happened at Boise State? No. But just speaking and thinking from a baseball perspective, if baseball generated more money, if it became more of a revenue-supporting, revenue-generating sport, schools would complain about it less. That is a bit of a battle. There are maybe 30 or 40 programs in the country, maybe fewer that could conceivably generate enough revenue because they draw some and because they have the links in the community to be considered revenue sports for their specific schools. That's out of about 270 schools that have Division I baseball, give or take. That number does fluctuate from time to time. But I, and one thing I wonder in the piece too is could Major League Baseball change the nature of its relationship with the NCAA, which was discussed about 10 years ago with MLB potentially funding one full scholarship per team, per Division I program, as long as they met certain requirements. Um, and actually, it was the college coaches who pushed back on that more than anybody because they didn't want the possibility of MLB also starting to exert some control, like saying, stop throwing your pitchers 150 pitches a game. And that just kind of went nowhere. But I wonder if this, especially with we lost – in the last 10 years, I think we've lost 10 or 11 Division I programs. It feels like a trend to me. The pandemic just accelerated it. I don't know what the optimal number of Division I programs is, but as I said in the piece, we have now lost all those college programs and had Major League Baseball cut all of its short season leagues. That's a lot fewer opportunities for players aged 18 to 22 who want to continue playing baseball. And I don't really see how we're ever better off as a sport with fewer spots for those guys to play. And MLB ultimately is going to be one of the entities that suffers from that in the long term because we'll just have fewer guys from whom to choose. We have fewer prospects. Some of those guys will go to the you know, Furman or Boise State or other programs that were cut. North Carolina Central, they cut their program. It's an HBCU, which I think is doubly bad to see them cut baseball. They're going to have a guy drafted in the top five rounds this year. We are worse off if those players end up not continuing to play baseball at all because they don't have the opportunities. Yeah, and plenty of athletes who play college baseball have options to play other sports. It's fairly common. So if you can get a scholarship to go play football or basketball or do something else at a school, you're probably going to choose that as opposed mm -hmm. to walking on somewhere if there are fewer programs to play for. So a lot of long-term implications for uh, the well-being of the sport and definitely check out Keith's piece because there's just a lot of a lot of interesting things to think about as you try and imagine what a solution could look like or a partnership could look like. Uh, before we go, we always recommend the shows that we're on, but I wanted to pass along a recommendation for another podcast on the Athletic Network. It's called Spin Rate. It's the Blue Jays podcast that Drew Fairservice and Caitlin McGrath host uh, each and every week. This week, they had Mark Corrigan as the guest, and their episode focused on the Negro Leagues and the recent inclusion of the stats from the Negro Leagues on baseball reference and what needs to happen in the future for this largely unrecognized part of history to be fully and properly acknowledged going forward. So we've got a clip from that episode that I'm going to play for you here. To learn all of these things about the Negro Leagues that I just did not know. And I was someone who covered the sport for years and years and someone who watched it from the time I, you know, I was a kid. And it was like remarkable how much of it I didn't know. But that's what I hope these numbers do, ultimately. Conversation, exploration, deepening your understanding of, of the context of these leagues, why they existed, the injustice at the center of them. But also, man, so you guys could play. 
I did some mm. great, great, great players that were doing remarkable things. And I think there is a responsibility for the chroniclers of the sport to get into this, to share it, to put it in the right context, to make it something that we pass along to the people that are just starting to watch the game, right? Like we, we do that with Babe Ruth. We do that with the history of the Yankees or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And that we need to do that with this history too. Again, be sure to check out the latest episode of Spin Ray anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also check out the latest episode of The Keith Law Show. Will Leach was the guest. Always a good time when Will and Keith get together on the pod. New subscribers to The Athletic can sign up for $3.99 a month at theathletic.com slash baseball show. That gets you access to the article we were just talking about that Keith wrote and everything else we have on the site. If you're into Pelican Grip and you're into all the sticky substances that are happening right now and all the drama and all the fallout, we are covering that as well as anybody out there right now. Be sure to check out those stories. If you like this podcast, take a moment to leave us a nice rating and review and tell a friend if you have a friend who would enjoy it as well. On Twitter, he's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.